Before we start this episode, I just want to take a minute to thank everyone for everything so far. Without you guys sharing and listening, this wouldn't really be possible or worth it. So, yeah, I can't thank you enough. I just want to let everyone know that we've been putting the episodes up on Patreon a few days early, so patreon.com slash nowherefaststudio. It's kind of confusing, but if we have a Monday release, the episode will be on Patreon the Thursday before. If we have a Thursday release, it will be available on Patreon the Monday before. So, I don't know if anyone cares, but they're there if you do. Also, uh, if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the previous episodes, please not only tell a friend, but if you have a minute, leave a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. That helps spread the word. It helps new people find out about us, and uh, it really helps with discoverability and all those fun kind of behind-the-scenes internet analytics. So, yeah, if you have a minute and you can do that for us, that would really help. Uh, That's about it. Uh, Once again, thank you for everything, and enjoy the episode. I know, uh, Sarah was telling me it's usually a lot more difficult to get some time with you, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. Um, thank you. No, for, I'm stoked that you asked. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I, uh, I think right when I started doing this whole thing, I, uh, I had you on the list of people I wanted to reach out to but I think I I wanted to wait a bit to ask and I think Sarah maybe thought that was a good way to approach it as well and I think we had only met maybe like once by then I just I I'm super interested in uh in what you know about and uh it's it's really different than anyone else I've had the opportunity to talk to. So I'm I'm looking very forward to uh, asking some questions and, and learning from the answers. Well, thanks. I think it's really cool that you have such a range of people on your podcast. Um, I've gotten to listen to a few of them and they're they've been super varied and and um and I've loved them. Thank you. Yeah, I uh, people always ask like what what type. Mm-hmm. Like when I meet someone, I I don't really know. They always ask what kind of podcast it is, and uh, I have <laughs> trouble answering that. But then I think, isn't it almost better to not totally. like have have one set of people you talk to because that would really like narrow the focus, but. I'm yeah I'm all over the place but that's kind of like I would like to be almost more all over the place if it was possible 
and yeah. you're you're definitely helping with that. I think you're officially the first and and maybe the last doctor we'll ever <laughs> have on here. So <laughs> that's awesome. I uh, I I usually try to think of like one initial question, and then that kind of helps. After mm-hmm. that, I just kind of freestyle and, and go off what the guest says. But Sarah kind of spoke to this, so we kind of penned this one together. It, I don't even know if I'm wording this properly, but if it makes sense. I know you've like lived in, uh, in a bunch of different places. So what kind of can you speak to like how Alberta or maybe you have to like broaden it to Canada, but how we're dealing with the climate crisis? Is it like better or worse or what are the pros and cons compared to other places you've seen approach what's going on? Wow, that's a really hard question, um, but it's timely. Um, the, you know, the COP meeting that just happened, which I didn't travel to, but obviously followed very closely, is a really good, um, kind of like the IPCC reports um, every several years. It's kind of a really good litmus test for um, how engaged policymakers actually are in different countries um, and how dedicated they really are right. to driving change and finding new solutions to the climate crisis. And um, <laughs> not to start on a real doom and gloom note, but I would say myself and other climate scientists in Canada and specifically cryosphere scientists were very, very disheartened um, by the lack of commitment and engagement Um of Canada at this recent meeting. There's um, sort of, I don't know what the right word is, but um, it's not an agreement like in the way that, you know, the Paris Agreement is a true agreement, but there have been sort of um, these templates kind of that were put forward at the meeting that that countries would sign off on and say, yes, I'm, you know, we are, we're aware that this is a problem and, and we're committed to a solution. And the one that pertains probably most strongly to Canada and Canadian landscapes and change in Canada um, was signed off on countries like Senegal and other countries that maybe have a less of a urgent and direct connection to the climate science that uh, was contained in that. And, and Canada did not make a commitment to, to working toward a solution on a certain timeline. So I think um, I've I've spoken to other ice core scientists and glaciologists and cryosphere scientists in Canada since since that meeting and which was just it was within the last month um, and we think we've all felt a little bit disheartened as people who work on the science but aren't policymakers ourselves but hope to impact policy so it's I guess all I can compare it to really I'm from the states originally I moved to Canada from the States and was in the States most of my life. Um, so in terms of where I've lived, I, I probably only could compare it really to change I've seen in US policy, but um, it's been about on par, although in the last in the last year, maybe, maybe even more disheartening in Canada 
um, politically. And is, is that like a, a step backwards? Like in, in previous years or previous conferences, have they kind of made like better pledges to, to work towards a common goal? And then this time they kind of like fumbled it or is that just kind of par for the course? Um, the, I would call this one a particularly bad fumble. The um, kind of this, the commitment I'm talking about was a, specifically about melting ice and its impacts on sea level rise and also mountain water resources. So it's, I mean, even if people in countries or policymakers in countries um, don't feel like they're directly impacted, like that's no, it doesn't work here in Canada. It's such a direct link to what's going on here, particularly in coastal and low lying regions of Canada um, where change is already happening and it's happening um, sort of more pro proportionately as well to um, like to coastal First Nations communities and things like this. So I would, I mean, it's just such a direct link to change that's already begun in Canada that it, this most recent, the COP27 um, in mid-November just now seems like a particularly big miss uh, to me for Canada. And and you guys all kind of expected more, like when the conference was starting, you guys obviously had higher hopes for what, what the rollouts would be. Yeah, I think so. I, it's just, I think so. Yeah. I mean, you're asking someone, though, who is quite removed from policy. Like, I really, that is not a strength of mine. I, I work with incredible people who luckily do translate science um, directly into political change, and I'm not one of them. So I'm sort of answering this as a scientist on the outside. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like, it's just unbelievable to me that the Kyrgyz Republic and Senegal and these other countries um, with significantly less resources than Canada have signed off on, you know, a, a commitment to combating sea level rise and mountain water resource impacts of melting ice. And, and yeah, and Canada didn't. It must be uh, like really, really frustrating for you and, and your colleagues to know kind of the science behind this and how it all like actually works and then to see it kind of treated this way by people who really have no idea with how it actually works and maybe if they were to understand like the repercussions more they would act differently it must be like you know screaming into a pillow or whatever yeah that's a pretty good way of describing it um I think um, you're totally you're you're totally right, and some of this is sort of why, in recent years, maybe the last five years or so, as I've kind of gone a little farther in my career, I've I've done the things that I can to spend more energy and time on communicating science and maybe not directly impacting policy, but at least communicating the science that I do. To broader audiences, um, which is something that I just didn't spend as much time and effort on in, in the past. Um, I think because it helps, at least for me, um, have a personal answer to what you're describing, which, which is really, you know, if I'm not someone who's 
who was born to be on the Hill and, and, and being in the policy world, then at least as a scientist, I can, I can put more of an effort into communicating the work that I do and the results of the work that I do to broader audiences. So I've tried to, to do that. If you had to, I mean, like put it in layman's terms kind of, but I'm, I'm a layman. So help me understand as well. Like if, if you want, you know, a more accessible, like if you want to convey to the average person how important it is to care about matters like this, just for like the future of, of the planet, how, like, what do you do to get people who might not fully understand the science and the numbers and everything? Like, what are you and your colleagues doing to get the average person behind this cause? Well, yeah, thanks for that question. Um, I think my, my answer to that question is pretty unique to, to me and, um, and sort of the kind of science that I do and the fact that I have, um, I have this kind of adventure component to a lot of the work I do, which I have seemed to leverage over the past couple of years. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it sounds a little bit weird, but I think because I do climate science, but particularly ice core drilling, which, you know, people kind, I think, find fascinating and interesting on its own. And then not only that, but, you know, I work at the, at the poles, but also in high mountain regions that are very hard to get to. And so there's this inherent adventure component to the science that I do. Like I have to ski and climb to some of the places I drill and, um, and that's managed to get attention in cool ways, like in ways that allow me to tell, to, to get, gain a big platform. So for example, probably the best example I can think of is this current project um, that I have on Mount Logan that was funded by National Geographic. And I didn't really like having a spotlight in this kind of way in the past. And I, I really, I've felt uncomfortable with a personal spotlight on, on me as a storyteller. Um, and I've become more comfortable with it because I now see that this is like, this is my little niche and this is the platform I've got now because of my little niche. And it's so powerful. Um, so in the slogan example, because I have funding from um, this, you know, from National Ge Geographic's perpetual planet funding stream, it comes along with this, like my grant came with the kind of support for storytelling. So a film will come out of it and I don't know ultimately what it will look like, um, but the commitment on behalf of the people at NetGeo who are making this is that um, basically the, the end goal of this film, whatever comes out about it, kind of telling the story of drilling this climate record on the top of Mount Logan, um, the end goal is actually to impact um, some like defined discrete policy measure um, in a timely way within Canada. So I've asked to partner with the organization in Canada that I think has the kind of uh, best shot at, at doing this and partnering with um, that organization is Protect Our Winters Canada. And maybe it's self-centered, but the reason that, that I see them as being 
the right organization to partner with is also the same answer to the question you just asked, which is, um, you know, like how are we telling the story in a way that um, that reaches a broad range of people and kind of the the protect our winters Canada philosophy, I guess, is basically this is a nonpartisan issue. Like, absolutely, this is apolitical at this point, and they someone someone at Powell said this like they're trying to make or they have made uh climate science cool and it sounds dorky just to say it but that's actually what they've done um by kind of similarly similarly to me in my ice core science world they have utilized the power of the people who believe in the cause already who are um uh, olympians and you know famous skiers and and, and people who a lot of people want to hear what they have to say. Um, they they are the mouth of the organization, and the power of that is unbelievable. And helps, I think, support this idea that, like, hey, this is totally a bipartisan issue at this point. And um, yeah, so so yeah, the Logan thing that that's a, a, just an example of it. But I think that's I think that's kind of what I've fallen into as my way of trying to to speak across party lines really like you leveraging adventure and hardship and all these things that are a part of the science that I do um to tell the bigger story so then which one came came first for you personally like were were you climbing and then realized you could be doing research up there while you're climbing or were you wanting to do research and climbing was kind of the means to to getting to these heights literal heights for you to do the research it's hard to say which came first although i i think if i look kind of back at what i've done at different points in my life um for work especially probably just exploring, adventuring, cold places, and my love of, of winter sports and all of that, I think really came first. Um, I, I did do an undergrad degree in earth and environmental science. So I was already sort of, you know, interested in, in earth science in general, but from there, I, like I left academia for a while and, and was a U.S. climbing ranger for years. And then, um, worked as a, as a mountain guide, like a seven summits mountain guide. And it wasn't till after doing that kind of work that I, I really, really loved, you know, living on glaciers and being in these places. Um, but especially my work as a ranger, um, seeing, I was, I started off in Olympic national park in Washington, um, on Mount Olympus, which is, uh, yeah, it's a, a part of the Olympic mountain range that's, you know, seeing pretty intense surface warming. And I was watching summer after summer, this change before my eyes. And I, it did have a profound impact on me. And I think like climbing and skiing and working on these places that I was watching change and that I loved so much. Um, and also seeing increases in, you know, avalanche related accidents and deaths and things like this that I knew were related somehow to changing climate around me. It did, it did really impact me. And I, I mean, I only lasted a few years before I decided, well, I really 
want to go back to school and and study these places that I've been living in and have learned to love. So I think it was more the experience and adventure in these places that came first. Do you, do you think at all, um, I'm trying to think of how to word this, because obviously the point of, of you furthering this cause is so that less people have to experience this stuff firsthand. But do you think there's like a, a power in experiencing it like you're saying you had to like watch all these problems exacerbate year after year and that made you want to get involved do you think if more people saw these things firsthand and were able to understand it on that level more people would get like physically involved in these causes i think so i think that's just sort of human nature um and it's funny because there's, um, you know, there's like constant ongoing debate, especially in um, like national parks in Canada, places like um, on the Columbia ice field where there's a big company pursuit that runs a bus that goes up the toe of the Athabasca Glacier and brings people up there. And there's just this ongoing constant, I get asked all the time what I think about things like that, um, you know, sort of ecotourism and stuff like stuff like this. And um, it's very, very hard for me to answer because, um, you know, the, the pros outweigh the cons of, of, of that kind of, um, I don't know what to call it, but tourism, I guess. Um, and I don't know how to answer it because the cons are pretty obvious, but there is so much power in people seeing things firsthand, um, like including myself, like I was saying, um, I think, you know, like that's that's how everything that I do today started, I, I think. Um, and if I had never been able to experience those places, I have no idea what I would be doing right now, but probably not what I do. So I think, um, yeah, I think that you're totally right. And um, and that others have um, not not necessarily capitalized on it, but have like there are our whole sectors of tourism and businesses that are are in in a altruistic way are based on this are based on getting people into places where they can see things for themselves and and have that actually drive change in their personal lives um it is powerful i feel uh like you know just in my day-to-day everything is kind of bad for you in some sort of way so i'm (laughs) always weighing things if the pros are a bit better than the gons so I think like as long as you can say that then it's it's probably good for the most part totally and yeah yeah and if like you you talking about this movie and hopefully more documentaries and and things focusing on this come out in the future and that is kind of a way for people to see them and kind of be uh, affected by them without actually having to put the wear of each person like traveling and and putting mm-hmm. whatever into the environment. Yeah, yeah, I, totally. I I've had this question uh, since since we came and and saw the the protector winters talk at the Mutart. I was wondering, and and 
let me preface this like i don't i don't mean any offense by this i hope no one takes this as a negative but i uh I looked up Protect Our Winters after that talk. I've, I actually am, am super interested in all of this and, and genuinely terrified about like just the, the future of everything after being exposed to a few of these talks. But I, I looked up Protect Our Winters and, mm-hmm. and they're pretty pretty big social media account like as as followers they're up there with with like lots of way more inconsequential things but like big brands celebrities Mm -hmm. bands and I wonder if is it like not harmful but Mm. you know like say they have three or four hundred thousand people following how many of those people are actually like doing anything to like affect mm. these causes, you know, like, and how many of them are just liking nice photos of mountains and posting things to their story without actually like doing anything to change anything. Um, definitely no offense taken. And this is a question that I think has been asked, um, not just of Protect Our Winters, but uh, there's a lot of organizations out there um, like POW. Um, so I, I mean, you should interview someone from POW, maybe Jeremy Jones, who's the or the US kind of founder. But um, so yeah, I, I certainly don't wanna speak on behalf of them, but I can tell you what I've observed as like a, I'm a science advisor for Protect Our Winters Canada and I have been since, um, the Canadian uh, part of the organization got off the ground. Um, so I kind of read and scientifically edit a lot of the materials that they come out with. And so, and I've watched from the outside as they've gone from um, a very small following to, like you said, pretty significant. Um, and now I've heard um, Allie Wines, the new executive director, speak to in person to, to exactly what you just asked. Um, so I, again, uh, like this is an outsider answer, but um, I guess what I've seen them do is basically uh, choose, you know, top parts of the climate crisis to try to find solutions to. And then the current one, like the current real focus just being on hitting greenhouse gas, get greenhouse gas uh, reduction targets it within certain number of years um, and doing so by showing up in Ottawa with you know petitions with X number of signatures on them and things like this and showing that there's a significant pr- percentage of Canadians who stand behind uh, what they are now the mouthpiece for in Ottawa and and this that maybe wasn't the answer just a couple years ago I think um, like they just kind of went through a, a you know, strategic planning reevaluation and all this kind of stuff. But um, like you can go and read about their the top four policy initiatives on the website. And each one, depending on where you are in Canada, like there are, um, you know, there's initiatives that you can get involved with. And at the very least, it's like they just, 
showed up in Ottawa and were able to say, you know, I don't know what the numbers are, but I think they've grown by like an order of magnitude over the last couple of years, um, more than an order of magnitude. Um, so they can actually show up with real power now and they're being listened to in Ottawa um, because, because of the number of people um, on, you know, signing their names to petitions and the, just the number of people who have signed up as members. And they're doing a bunch of things to increase membership right now, like turning turning it into a game, which um, maybe sounds gimmicky, but I think so far has been quite quite successful and not gimmicky at all. No, um, no, they, uh, I know they talked about it at that talk. And yeah. I, it's funny, I, I usually gauge things like that just kind of based on kind of using me as like the sample audience mm. and i i'm like i'm trying to get better as i get older but i still you know kind of hate on some stuff and think some things are corny and i thought that was really cool and i was thinking like yeah. if, if i think the game aspect it, there's something to it and that like it could get people into it then it must actually be working on a quite a large scale because i'm i'm kind of like a discerning customer in that way so I, cool. I actually i think it's a great idea and uh i mean it's funny as we say this i'm i'm the exact hypocrite that i'm critiquing because i followed them and i liked all their photos and i haven't done anything to <laughs> with climate change so um i love what you just said um <laughs> yeah i mean actually when i heard before this the sort of game on climate change this game thing rolled out like i heard it you know i heard it pitched and i and i thought like it, yeah is this gonna be a gimmicky kind of thing and I'm pretty sold too. I mean, I, they could tell you the stats. I can't tell you how many people have now signed up as members and what percentage of membership it's increased, um, which is really, really huge when they're showing up, trying to talk to MPs and talk to people and they and you want to be listened to. Um, like it comes down to numbers and how many people you have standing behind you. So it seems to have worked so far. And the other thing that I think is really like powerful about this is that um, you know, it's a game, right? So there's like prizes and there's significant prizes and they're coming from industry. So they're you're, like, you have to get really big partners on board with this, like big, big gear companies and big companies and they are on board. They're giving away, you know, lots of things and they're putting their, they're also putting their money where their mouth is, which is really cool to see. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think the whole thing is is really amazing. Like the, with them working with like big big outdoor athletes and, and big like outdoor brands to give away like substantial stuff. It makes me kind of feel like this is what influencing should have been. Right. Like, using yeah. your voice to like amplify something that matters instead totally. of like 
celebrity selling more Ugg boots or something like that <laughs> like, is actually like it probably all ties in that's probably adding to the problem power or protect our winters trying to solve right too many people influencing things that don't matter at all but it, it's really inspiring that these people are like using the same logic to like mm-hmm. push a much more important narrative, which will actually, you know, keep the world around longer for people to influence Ugg boots. So <laughs> it all works. It all works. Would I, I should have asked at the beginning, I, I always do this every interview, I'm all over the place. What What's your exact like title? Uh, yeah, like you probably have a million, but I know you're a doctor, but then you're an ice core scientist. I don't want to like botch it. Do you mind like telling, like, what are you? No, uh, no, I don't mind. Um, yeah, I guess I'm a doctor, but not a useful one. Um, I'm, I'm an ice core scientist, yes, uh, and I'm. I'm the director of Canada's National Ice Core Lab, which is at University of Alberta. And then if I I know as I'm asking this, it's going to be difficult to sum up, but what like exactly are you doing on these hikes? I know like at uh, TELUS World of Science and I've, I've had a glimpse into a bit of what you do, but maybe if you could like sum it up and explain it to anyone listening what, like uh here's an easier one i guess what was your last mission and what did you guys accomplish on it please um my last mission was on mount logan in may of this year um and the the general priority there was drilling a surface to bedrock ice core on the summit plateau um, because we've always, we being ice core scientists, have always suspected that that location um, probably houses some of or the oldest nonpolar Arctic ice on earth, um, potentially having, containing really really valuable climate record that we can't get from the polar regions um, in terms of, you know, long-term climate change in in the North Pacific. Um, So this, that was my most recent big project. And um, we just, so we drilled it in May and then did all of the sort of imaging and ice core processing, cutting it up and all that, getting it ready for analysis in the couple months after. And then uh, last week, I came back uh, with Kira Holland, my student who's working on that record uh, from the States where we we completed a, a three-week analysis campaign of the only work we can actually do um, in Canada yet. Um, the only sort of chemical analyses we can't do here in Canada. So we um, that's where we are with it right now. We have almost all the data in hand from that campaign. And now, I mean, the, the time cycle of projects like this, like the next several years, um, papers will be 
we'll be rolling out with the results um, from this really exciting new record. Um, so that's kind of the big one that just happened slash is ongoing. Um, and then people want to know what's next, even though I feel like I just got off Logan, but um, <laughs> the next deep drilling project, like many, many hundred meter, um, this one closer to 700 meter deep is uh, on Axel Heiberg Island, which is on the Western side of the Canadian Arctic archipelago. We'll be drilling, um, drilling a, a deep ice core there. It's very close to the Arctic Ocean. So the, the scientific reason for going there to get a new climate record is actually quite different than the, the Logan story, but, um, but that's where the next deep drilling project is. But then, uh, okay, here's another question. Are they doing the same research in the States? Like, is there, there's someone with your title, but doing all this research in other climates, like in the States or Europe or like other continents? Yeah, so I guess based on this international body called International Partnerships for ice core science or IPICS. Um, I'd say there's about 300 of us in the world, 300 ice core scientists. We get together every four years at this IPICS conference somewhere in the world. Um, and so, yeah, I probably, based on the, on the registration rates for that, it's about 300 ice core scientists worldwide. And um, there aren't so many in Canada because we, you know, we didn't have a national lab until now. And it's not sort of, surprisingly not something that um, historically people have been trained in in Canada, but the US, Australia, um, Denmark, a bunch of other European countries have very strong groups. And there's not necessarily, like, in fact, there's not at all a correlation between, you know, where an ice core scientist's home and lab is and where they work, um, which is true for myself too. I work at both poles and I work, um, you know, in the Rockies and the Yukon as well. But um, I think it's more about what each lab specializes in and can offer the rest of the international ice core community. Um, you know, so I lead projects that are scientifically, of course, <laughs> very interesting to me and I've decided to prioritize, but it doesn't necessarily mean that all of the analyses are happening in-house by any means or anything like that. Um, like doing this kind of science is inherently very interdisciplinary and collaborative and requires not only a lot of scientists, but generally the resources of a lot of countries, which is something that actually drew me to ice core science. I really love how, how cross-disciplinary and collaborative it is. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, it does for sure. And then it makes me wonder, you guys are obviously all like sharing intel and, and mm -hmm. certain people must like make certain discoveries that kind of inform the way other mm -hmm. scientists like look into things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's also, I really like um, kind of method development stuff and and pushing what we can do analytically and, and that side of things as well. And that's something else that um, is is very cool with this kind of science, like different labs specializing, specializing in very different kinds of um, analytical techniques and then sharing that information across labs and, and just being able to do things that we've never done before. Like, I think it's so exciting, that side of things as well. 
I think I know the answer to this, but was your position in the lab at the university, was that created for you or what, like, do you have a predecessor? No, I have a predecessor. Um, he's a, a mentor of mine and, and he, he retired, but um, Martin Sharp, amazing Canadian glaciologist um, who retired. I don't remember the year, a few years ago. Um, yeah. So he was running the lab like prior to you running it? No, um, no, but so Martin is the person who secured a big CFI grant. So that's the Canada Foundation for Innovation. And, and so I, I can't recall the year, but it was around 2015 probably when the Geological Survey of Canada in Ottawa um, sort of disbanded its glaciology group and and defunded it. Um, so there were a number of wonderful glaciologists there um, and that group kind of got dispersed and let go of. And there was also um, never a lab, but there was a an archive there, like just a, a freezer storage unit of Canadian Arctic ice cores that had been drilled um, basically since the, the, the 60s. And, um, and the, <laughs> the power basically to that unit was also being unplugged. So the decommissioning of the G that section of the GSC in Ottawa um, was kind of this really critical moment. And um, those cores were gonna be decommissioned I mean they were gonna they were gonna melt like they just weren't gonna keep that facility going anymore so um thank goodness Martin wrote um one of these CFI grants that sort of is for urgent <laughs> urgent timely um you know funding and and that's where the original funding came from for the Canadian ice core lab um but yeah, so when I was hired, the funding was in hand and there were the three big empty rooms, um, but nothing had been designed or built yet. So that's that's when I started, which I was um, straight from finishing my postdoc. I wasn't even quite done when I was hired. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, I obviously was in close contact with Martin during my postdoc and talking to him about this and um you know, reading a lot of the CFI texts and things like this, but um, it was a pretty amazing time to be brought on board. I mean, before anything was built and then, um, yeah, I, I got to spend the first two years of my position um, using everything that I'd learned in, in the U.S. and also in other countries, ice core labs that I worked in for a long time to, to design and then uh, build what the facility has now become. So you had a lot of input in, in like everything being built and the, like the the way they put it all together and w what equipment went into it. Yeah, I did. So, um, I don't know who's going to listen to this. I don't know how great it is to tout this, but the CFI itself obviously funded very specific, like not just the, you know, the freezer units and like the, the facility itself, but everything that was going to go in it. So um, I didn't write that. I was um, like consulted at the time, but 
Um, I think there were 14 major purchases and 12 of the 14 that got funded, I submitted, once I was hired, I submitted amendments to change what was being purchased or designed and built. Um, so I, yeah, it was, um, I don't know how else to describe that process, but even though the funding was basically earmarked for certain things like, um, like say the, this really cool imaging system that we have, um, what was written into the original grant was kind of an off the shelf imaging system that was designed for imaging soils and sediments and rock samples. And so I wrote this huge amendment for that, just that purchase. And I did this for 11 other ones um, to have an engineering company actually build a line scan imaging system specifically for the imaging uh, and microstructure of ice. So that's what we have now. Um, and yeah, so if you want, if you walked through the lab and asked me about each thing in there, that's the same kind of story. But as a result, like it was very worth the effort of rewriting a lot of that and submitting all these um, proposal amendments because now we have um, really cutting edge equipment in the lab, including like that imaging system I mentioned, worldwide unique pieces of equipment that have helped to bring in international collaborators themselves. Like the, the equipment itself has actually driven some collaborations, which is wonderful um, and has kind of helped set us up to start off, you know, at, at the forefront moving forward as a, as a nation that hasn't historically really been uh, in ice core science. That's uh, incredible. But if you were to guess, like, how often globally is one of these labs constructed? Like, are, would we be the most recent one in North America, at least? Oh, yeah, for a national lab, definitely. Um, yeah, it's probably the only one in my lifetime for sure. Oh, okay. Even more rare than I thought. Well, yeah, because the opportunity for something like this is like a country that has never had, you know, been a big contributor to ice core science that's never had a national lab deciding to get into that game. And that does not happen very often. Um, so yeah, it's pretty rare. So do you like foresee because we have this lab and all this cutting edge technology, you'll be able to kind of come to all these conclusions that might, you know, next time around at this summit, will things change just because we have the, or you have the opportunity to like do more in-depth research and with more up-to-date, like you can maybe show these people the first time like what you guys have been able to accomplish with this lab and then in the future they might take it more seriously oh you mean sort of at the next um this ipix meeting yeah yeah that's an interesting question um i think um it's been it's been really cool so far like the kind of like i was like I was saying, like, especially deep drilling polar projects, they just can't be done without the funding and support and infrastructure of many different nations. And um, as a result, 
from the moment that this lab became fully operational a couple years ago and um you know when i started to get some really big projects funded and off the ground and affiliated of course with with the lab and um you know trying to just make a name for the place and i've felt an enormous amount of um international support and excitement and it's it's so with each with each of these projects and also just the um yeah completion of the building the facility itself like uh it's been really it's been really amazing to just have yeah basically an, an enormous amount of international support and that has shown itself in a number of different ways from um you know colleagues in other samples running uh, colleagues in other countries you know running samples for projects in kind because they want to be a part of the new canadian effort and things like this um you know just to to inclusion on antarctic drilling projects which um generally don't for the most part include canada because we don't yet have a canadian antarctic program um so it's looked like all sorts of different things but in, in all the ways i could imagine I've, I've like truly felt the excitement of other countries um, as we've kind of gotten things off the ground in Canada. That's good. Like, that's great. That means there is some promise for the future, <laughs> right? Like, if it's someone looking less grim than it could be. Yeah, well, and yeah, collaboration over competition when it comes to important science feels feels right to me yeah of course especially when it's like the end goal is just kind of saving humanity really there i would hope there isn't that much like competition but you never know i'm i'm thinking and this might be a weird comparison but with Mm. with my my disease like the reason i'm Mm. in my chair it was like no one cared about it really there was no advances in any of the research and it just sort of seemed like it was gonna be the way it was forever and then I haven't been able to find out but I I can tell like the you know someone was personally affected by it like someone with Hmm. huge amounts of money their son or daughter like someone was probably affected and now like they're really speeding up the research there's been more advances in the past like six months than ever and i'm wondering if if the same thing is sort of applicable to like climate stuff do you think like once once like the right people start to care it'll like really expedite like the research and the funding like it sounds like there's already a ton of funding and obviously it takes billions probably, but I wonder if if that applies at all. Like if like now some people are standoffish and there's deniers and stuff, but I wonder fast forward a couple of years, if, if those people kind of change the way they see it, if everything will, will become like exponentially or expedited in like the research and the funding and even just the petitions and the amount of like care put into it. Do you, you see it going that way? Well, that's um, a really cool, interesting thought. Like I, I think it's kind of, 
it's reminding me of what you asked before about, you know, is there strength in people seeing change with their own eyes and um, seeing these places that are changing with their own eyes, that kind of thing. Um, Kind of like you're saying, like if someone's personally impacted, it's like sort of a sad part of human nature, but you know, if someone is personally impacted by an issue, then they're more charged to, to do something about it versus it's just sort of this amorphous thing that doesn't directly impact them or someone they love. And, and I kind of think, I mean, with climate change, like if you're not there already, you're, you're going to be there soon with realizing that if it doesn't directly impact you, it is directly impacting somewhere you live or someone you live, like we're there. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, increase in hurricane frequency and intensity, or like all of the many things that in our world that are connected to rising global temperatures. Um, like, yes, I think if you aren't already there, you're going to be there really soon. Cause you, there's no way around it. We have, we all have this direct connection to it. Um, the funding thing is different. Like, uh, it's political. <laughs> so, um, very, like I work with scientists um, in all sorts of countries, but for example, right now in Hungary and other um, other countries, it's a particularly bad time for climate scientists just because the political environment. And so the answer to that question in every any given country, country you know, it's different and it depends on what's going on politically. Um, and of course, the truth is that, you know, funding drives all of this. So so that's kind of a muddier one to me, but um, like I'm with what you just said, I'm really curious. You said over the last half year or so, I think you said six months, I, that you've seen like a market growth in, in research. And yeah. in, is, it, is that because like, did you directly observe an influx of funding because like you think that certain people were personally touched by yeah, like I, I constantly joke, or maybe not constantly, but I've made the joke that like some billionaire somewhere in the world, one of their children was diagnosed with what I have. Because I used to get emails like from the, the foundation saying like, you know, we've, we've put $60,000 towards the research this year and like that. I mean, sadly, is is yeah. never gonna matter at all. Totally. And then recently, the emails say like we put two point four billion into wow. this year. Like, and there's huh. a bu- bunch of uh, yeah. I mean, I I'm you're the guest. I want to talk about your okay, stuff. Sorry. So. <laughs> no, 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 I'm um, not, not at all saying not to bring it up. I'm just saying I don't want to take away from you as a guest. But yeah, no, they've they've like they're close, close to actually like maybe even curing what I have, which is uh, I mean, a, a lot of I know it's it's sad that a lot of diseases people kind of think the cure might be coming and uh-huh. uh and i i hate to be morbid about it but you know like als cancer all that mm-hmm. like people think your cure is coming and it's probably not but 
just the way what I have works, it could actually be cured. And they're like kind of close to it, it seems. And they like really, there was like, they, they felt like they were never even going to like be 3% close to a cure for the first, like maybe 10 or 15 years. I had it. And then now like every day there's new studies and there's like actually a treatment not wow. not a full cure, but like a a, a good like treatment that would kind of mm-hmm. give me back like maybe five or ten years of the progression that they've like pretty much figured out. They're just I think it, it's going through like the last stages of human mm-hmm. testing just to make sure it's all good before they give it to all of us. But yeah, <laughs> and then wow. thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for answering that um yeah so do you actually that sort of brings up a question do you think more like is is the cure or not cure but like solving some of these problems with climate stuff could that actually be accomplished by funding like is is money going to help out at all or is it like kind of is it other factors or do you think it's something with with more money more research and more like science could be funded and then they could actually figure out like some of what's going on and kind of like uh what's well like retroactively repair some things we've done to the planet or are we like too far gone at this point no, we're not too far gone. Ask me in five years. Um, I think uh, like the timeline is very short for us to decrease emissions um, significantly, but it's not it's not too late yet. But that's a really interesting question that I kind of hate to answer because it sort of shoots myself on the foot. But um, like really in terms of of reaching these targets quickly and what needs to be done um, obviously money behind things helps, but I don't, I mean, the top priority is not more funding behind the research right now. The, the research has arrived. Like anyone who's interested can read the most recent IPCC. You can just even read the, the summary, um, part of the report, the summary for policymakers, like the science has arrived. It's conclusive. We, we, we already know what we need to do. Um, the, so, the, I mean, policy has to change. That's it. That's and that's. This also gets back at why I think I've, I've put my alignment and efforts with you know protect our winters and um, because I, we have to we have to shift policy quick quickly and do what we can on that front. It's so, yeah. Like I mean, this really critical time where. Um, a lot of work needs to be done by a lot of nations in a few short years. Um, it's not really about funding more climate research. It's about having true um, true sway when it comes to shifting policy. And I mean, this this might be my most novice question of all, but what like i don't understand it if the policies won't change and when they're going to auto one stuff people aren't mm-hmm. 
doing what they need to do what what is preventing them from doing it like if, if the science is there and it's obvious what could be done to like save the planet what, what is people's opposition to to getting <laughs> that done i guess you're too good of a person if you're asking that question because people aren't i don't it doesn't seem to me in politics i mean it's it's a race right so people do what's popular and this is again why making climate change popular is a really really smart idea um right. Like politicians just want, they want to get reelected, right? And it's, it's, it's a game of popularity. So if, if, you know, climate change initiatives aren't popular, then that's not what they're getting behind. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's why I think this makes a lot of sense right now. And, but then, just like, it, it, I, like I get the logic where you know, like legalizing weed or something that mm-hmm. will get Trudeau voted in, but climate change won't really sway the vote. But it is like, would all these like policies be pulling money out of other policies, or like, what's the logic there? Oh God, you really should talk to someone who spends time doing this in Ottawa um like I even just listened (laughs) to to um at this pal summit you know to people talking about this and it's so far from the world I'm in I I don't really have my head around that um but I can say you know from listening to people who are in that world enough recently that like it's about get them getting behind policies and getting enough um, enough people in Ottawa behind policies is um, like, it's about popularity. So yeah, I mean, if you're, the, if you're seeing an issue as bipartisan and you're gonna lose a huge part of the population support, um, like that's pretty risky. That's a risky thing to do um, for your own career, which is gonna be based on on having support. So. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm probably not the right person to ask. No, I I sort of understand what you're saying. It's just like really blowing my mind that like people would be a, opposed to this. You know, like <laughs> someone someone would think like, oh, we don't want to like risk our vote by caring about the world. <laughs> I I mean, I know it's like it's fucked up, but yeah. <laughs> So what, what, like, I don't know, here's a really boring, like, blanket question, but, like, what's one thing that I could do starting right now that will help with all this? Like, one simple thing that I could implement starting right now that would be positive towards like all the everything going wrong with climate and all that right now like would it be like not running water as long in the shower or like just one simple thing you know this is also i really like your questions right now um so i i thought a lot about you know changes that people can make in their personal lives and 
truly what kind of impact that has on a broad scheme for a while and have answered that exact kind of question in a personal change kind of way in the past. And over the last few years and listening to people who um, understand economics and things that I really don't um, like hearing Naomi Klein speak recently, um, I have a very different answer to that. And um, this is not at all to say that, you know, each of us caring about this issue and reducing our own carbon footprints. Like, I'm not saying that doesn't make a difference. We right. all do all the things in our lives that we can. Like my wife and I are considering getting an electric car and like really significantly trying to reduce our footprint. Not saying that doesn't make a difference, but you can, there is, it's just like this order of magnitude thing. This is what I heard Naomi Klein speak about and someone basically said to her, you know, what do I do in my own life? And her answer was essentially whatever you need to do to put to, to change policy. Like, I don't care if you get a low flush toilet, if you're better about shutting your lights off, if you get an electric car, like good for you. But the power in that is actually showing people that you're making those decisions. It's that isn't going to do it. Like we have to have countries changing their policies. So, um, and I, I mean, like also you're doing this right now. You asked me to come on here and you have an amazing following of lots of different people and you're choosing to put your time and your name behind having this conversation. Like that's doing it. Um, but I really have taken to heart things like um, what I heard Naomi Klein say, which is, which is that like, you know, the power in me changing my vehicle and doing all these things in my own home is actually showing people who care about the choices that I make, who see, who, you know, see what I do and like, like to know the choices I make, like showing them that that's what I'm doing. Um, it's not because collectively we're going to make a difference by getting low flush toilets. We're going to make a difference by somehow changing countries' policies. Um, so that's my weird answer. No, that that's actually amazing because I feel like maybe uh, like until recently, I feel maybe people would have given the answer of, yeah, like turn your lights off and do all these totally. little things. But it's way more honest to say like those things are great, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, they're not actually going to affect any change. We got to go like way higher up. Totally. And I, I'm like, my brain doesn't work this way. I, I don't understand economics and eco-economics at all, but, but listening to people who do like, that's resoundingly what you'll, what you'll hear, um, which, uh, you know, some, to me, it's not, um, what's the word? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't take away from it at all. It's not like it makes me not want to make change in my own life, but it's like, yeah. oh, the impact is actually that I'm showing people that I care about this. It's not, it's not that this is where the change is going to happen. It's still so, important. <laughs> and, and like, when you're talking about these policies, do they vote only vote on them like during ele election time? Or is it like something that could be kind of altered whenever, or is it only like when politicians need to be elected again, that they like reassess them all? 
Um, having asked that question myself, um, anytime, like, yes, anytime, but um, during politician, like during election cycles, absolutely, that is, that's when things change. So it's, it's much more important to do things on a timely matter, like aligned with, um, with election cycles. Yeah. Yeah. So like, think about it constantly, but really the time to strike is like when, when there's going to be a change in the government, which is soon, right? Like, I don't don't know much about, or like it, it just happened, you said. So does that mean they'll reassess it in four years? No, but um, you're also asking somebody who can't yet vote in Canada. I'm not a citizen. Uh, <laughs> um, I pay less attention. Um, I'm a permanent resident here, um, and I am almost a citizen, but not yet. So I um, honestly pay more attention still to U.S. politics than Canadian, since I'm uh, not a voter yet here. And where, where in the world is uh, like the most doing the the best at handling this situation? Like where where are the policies like leaning more towards what you and your colleagues want them to be leaning towards yeah denmark like around there you said skin well i was i was mentioning some countries that got behind this um it's called ambition on melting ice the the sea level mountain water resources i just was like mentioning um but yeah i mean Again, I don't think I'm quite the best person to ask, but I know countries like Switzerland, um, like if you look at these different initiatives, you know, there are certain con- countries that are, have basically made commitments on all of them, countries like Switzerland, Finland, Norway. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good test of a commitment. Well, the, I mean, it's good to sort of, to know that you know change could happen and it's not all bleak but it does sound like you know canada might have have a way to go but you're you're also adding adding to the potential of of them coming around and all of it so i mean personally you're you're doing more than anyone else ever could it seems Thank you. I, I, I do. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. And I do wish sometimes that, you know, the science I do, I could see a more direct link um, to policy change. And it's hard to see that direct link sometimes, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's there. And definitely what, one of the things that keeps me going and keeps yeah driving the the desire to do this kind of work and do you know i guess you're you're young so maybe it's hard to to judge but do you think like the interest in in being involved like on your level like are there more people trying to get on into the science of this like more people trying to go to school for these positions or more people applying to work in these labs than there would have been even 10 years ago? I think for sure. I've, yeah, I mean, 
even just compared to when I, um, you know, when I went, went back to start my graduate studies and now it's noticeable, it's definitely noticeable and being in the position I am now, um, you know, where I really get a sense of, of how many students are wanting to get into this field of study, um, just because they're reaching out and, and I can see the interest, um, like for sure, this was not popular when I started, um, my master's and, and then my PhD people, like this kind of science wasn't even anyway in the kind of the public eye at all. Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. I have seen a change just, um, yeah, like over my own short time. <laughs> That's good. Cause you need, I mean, young people kind of dictate everything, but especially when it comes to like affecting change yeah. and policies and stuff, like too many old people dictate all this <laughs> and like, not, not to be fully ageist, but like, we don't, really need old people's opinion on young issues or like maybe this isn't a young issue but you know what I mean like the people who are gonna be here the longest and are gonna have to deal with all this should be the ones kind of running the show right now not old people that just are set in their ways and don't really like care how things go yeah I I know what you're saying and um I think that's part of what's been really inspiring over the last few years as well. Like, like Greta Thunberg and these very young driven, like revolutionaries, like truly in every sense of that word, I've never seen anything like that in my life. It's incredible. And that's, these are, you know, really, really young people and young movements and showing us the change they want to see for their own lives like that's incredible and I had never seen anything like that before that's new um before before I let you go I totally forgot to ask I know you're also involved in um what is the foundation called the the girls on ice Oh yeah, Girls on Ice Canada. Yeah. Do you do you want to explain that a bit? That one's super cool too. Sure. Um, yeah. Thanks. Um, Girls on Ice Canada is a it's a two week sort of science um, education experience experiential mountain education program um, for female identifying high schoolers, sixteen and seventeen year old. Uh, in Canada, and it's completely tuition free. Uh, two weeks. The original program, which which um, myself and a couple other Canadian women got off the ground a few years ago, um, is run in Revelstoke National Park out of a Salkin hut, which is a, a backcountry hut um, in the national park. And the idea with the program really is is kind of two pronged. It's um, it's to get more, you know, young uh, female identifying students into STEM fields, uh, you, know, um, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, um, and also, also hand in hand to give them, you know, like a, a serious mountain experience that will help increase their self 
confidence and self-efficacy in the outdoors. Um, so this original program, you, you hike into a backcountry hut and then spend a lot of time doing sort of um, basic mountaineering skills, uh, hand in hand with um, instructor taught courses on, you know, intro to climate science and intro to snow science and this kind of stuff and mountain weather. Um, and the culmination of the program is also two-pronged kind of serving these two these two <laughs> pathways. Um, they have to, the students have to develop their own um, science project that they, that they kind of undertake while they're up at the hut. And then there's also a physical objective. So climbing, um, climbing a peak, both of which are very difficult. And generally for the students who get accepted into the program are both like very far outside their comfort zones. Um, and really we're trying to reach um, like remote um, First Nations communities all across Canada and, and really try to try to serve um, students who have not been given an, an opportunity in the past. So unlike most programs where, you know, your previous achievement and all these things are what gets you in, in this case, um, basically lack of opportunity um, is, is more important. Um, so it's, yeah, it's kind of a hot, it was hard to get off the ground because it's a high cost per participant, but, um, but the strength in that is that we've tried to remove basically all barriers to accessing this program as possible um, and thus, you know, be able to, to serve the populations that we're trying to serve. Um, and really cool this year for the very first time, instead of running one program, we ran, we ran three. Um, we, we ran the original Revy based one and then one in the Yukon and one in the Kootenays. Um, and that was the first time we sort of have increased our federal funding and um, the funding overall for the program to be able to, um, to have these two other programs run as well, which hopefully we can do again next summer. That's uh, incredible. Yeah, you know, I uh, everyone I have interviewed is doing doing cool stuff, but you're uh, you're I think you're the first guest who's actually like affecting such positive change and like such a an interesting like initiative that you're kind of pioneering. So it was really really interesting to talk to you and uh i can't thank you enough for making the time for all of that i uh i'll i'll before i put this up i'll text you and try to get some like links and maybe like some okay. if you've links to any of the videos and whatever just so i can like present people with with all the information going forward so if they want to like get into any of this they uh they can that's that's awesome thank you um yeah that sounds great and thank you for asking me i like i loved talking to you and i was really excited for this so thank you <laughs> yeah thank you and uh, i i don't know if i'll ever be able to like top the the subject matter that we we've like covered <laughs> covered in this i don't know when the next time i'll get uh the opportunity to talk to a doctor or an ice scientist but uh 
Also, any of the people you mentioned, if you you ever want to introduce me to them, I would I would love to like talk to to more of of this type of person, and be able to use my tiny listener base to like spread awareness of all this stuff as well. That'd be awesome. Well, yeah, for sure. I feel like it would be really cool to talk to like one of the policy analysts or something for PAL, like someone who can speak way better than I can about the, those questions you had, which are really the most important ones. Yeah, um, I would I would love that. So if cool. we can facilitate that at all. But oh, yeah. th- thank you. I'll uh, let you get back to your day and uh, let me know if, if there's anything I could ever do to help out with this. I doubt there is, but I, I would love to do anything I could to, to help out the world. Well, thanks. I'm, I'll take you up on that. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. Enjoy yeah. the day. You too. Okay, bye for now. See ya.